0: We started Daylight Church again with the idea, one of of our pillars being study and that we want to make sure no question is off the table. And so we have this email set up, questions at daylightchurch.com. And I got an interesting question this week from my wife who said, why would a pastor want to convince himself to be an atheist continually? And I remember, (laughs) (laughs) apparently I I threw something out there at the end of my sermon last week that if, if you just take it at face value, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense for a pastor and you need a wife's correction for that sort of thing. Uh, what I meant by that was that every, I, I go through mental exercises fairly fairly constantly trying to see if I can convince myself of an alternate worldview. I, I want to I be honest in my faith and, and realistic about what I believe, and so I, I try to think of myself from an atheistic perspective or from a Baha'i perspective or a Hindu perspective and see if, if the world makes sense. And so far, I'm just, I'm just not convinced, and that's kind of what this series is about is what, is it, what does it take to convince? What, you know, why, why believe what Christians say they believe? And why would a pastor believe what he believes? And so I, I, I don't try to convince myself to be an atheist. That, that, and, but I have to be intellectually honest. And, and it's probably really hard for a pastor because in some sense, my whole livelihood and my whole life and my whole identity is wrapped around this thing. And so can I even be honest with myself for the kind of questions I ask myself? But that's what I meant by that. So if that threw you off, come see me and we'll talk. But this whole series I mentioned last week is going to be a little bit like this. If you're you're really, really hungry and somebody hands you a ginger kale smoothie, you're going to want to slap them in the face. And and it's a totally inadequate series. When we ask the question, why, and we do three weeks on it, it, it very, very much falls short. And I'm completely aware of that from the beginning. But what I'm hoping is that this will get your juices flowing a little bit, that you'll want to do your homework a little bit more, that you won't be afraid to ask these questions and look into the evidence. And see, does Christianity stand on its own legs, or is it a myth or a fairy tale? Is it something somebody made up sometime? And so it, it also may feel like this, because if, if, you, if you were here last week, and if you weren't, you should go back and listen to it, because it was a phenomenal sermon. It was so, so good. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, it was, it was rapid fire. It was rapid fire stuff. And, and so... Go back, listen to it, watch it again and again, and see what it sparks in you, and then start to do your homework on those areas that are sparked in you. That's kind of the idea behind it. It's not to answer all the questions of the world or even to think that we can do that. It's just to say that where I'm at, and that's kind of what this series is, is where I'm at, is that Christianity is intellectually viable, and it's believable. And I I hang my hat on it, and I don't have any trouble hanging my hat on it. And so here it comes. Here comes another big puddle of mud, uh, free throw free flowing thought process where I'm just throwing stuff down on a sheet of paper and then putting it into a presentation onto the question of why Jesus. And so we we tackled we tackled why why God last week. And so that was why why theism, why I believe in a personal creator or an intellect behind this universe. And again you can go back and watch that. And 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 then because I'm there, and I'm, I'm pretty solidly there. You know, there's stuff that you know that you know, and then there's stuff that you think that you know, and there's stuff that you're not very sure about, and there's stuff that you don't believe. And, and on, when it comes to theism and the and intellectual creator, I'm, I'm pretty far on the left side of that scale. I'm, I'm pretty committed, pretty solid on it. I, I, it would be really hard to convince me otherwise at this point. On this topic of why Jesus, I'm a little bit inside of that. I think the evidence for Jesus is still really, really strong. I don't think it's certain by any stretch, but I don't think any worldview can be, you can have certainty in. And so there's, there's a comfort in knowing that. But we're going to talk today about Jesus. Why why follow Jesus? So once we've established that there is an intelligent creator, then what does that mean for the rest of the world? And obviously, it excludes naturalism or scientism right off the bat, because naturalism or scientism would say there is no theistic God. And so so I'm I'm starting today from that that thing where we've slid away from that now into which of the the religious worldviews is right. Is it Hinduism? Is it Buddhism? Is it Christianity? Is it Baha'i? And so forth. And so I I hang my hat on Jesus, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Josh McDowell, my my friend um, Abdu Murray wrote this book called Grand Central Question. Josh McDowell says this in the forward. He says, it's frustrating that Christians have the most important things to say about the most important questions in life, yet they're often silent because, and then he goes on for a page talking about all the reasons that we don't talk about this stuff. And primarily, it's either ignorance or fear. We don't know the answers, and we're afraid of looking stupid, or we're afraid of doing more harm than good. And so it's important that we study this stuff. We have a pillar of study for a reason, that we would be intellectually satisfied by our faith. And so here we go, puddle of mud, here it comes. I was born in Danville, Illinois, raised in Paducah, Kentucky. And Paducah, at least at that time, I don't don't know where the Bible Belt boundaries are, but I would say is Bible Belt Central Paducah, Kentucky. And I was raised in a Missouri Synod Lutheran Church and went through confirmation. And so I grew up with a respect for the Bible, a respect for... For the Christian church, a respect for pastors and just kind of a a worldview of Christianity in general. And so so I'm I'm very honest about that. I I don't have a story that I was once atheist or I was once Buddhist and now now I'm a Christian. I I was I was raised with Christianity at the forefront of my thought and looked into it. But I want to say at the beginning, there's there's a fallacy called the genetic fallacy. And people will say, so the genetic fallacy is the idea that you dismiss a claim due to its origin, that, that somehow Christianity would have more credibility coming from someone who converted to it rather than someone who was raised in it. And that's, that's backed up by the atheist Richard Dawkins who says this. He says, how thoughtful of God to arrange matters so that wherever you happen to be born, the local religion always turns out to be the true one. And so there's this argument that's primarily made by atheists that I've, that I've seen is that, that a person born in Saudi Arabia is more likely to be Muslim. A person born in India is more likely to be Hindu and so forth. And so it it makes this idea that wherever you were born is what your faith will be. And so we can, it's almost like we can just kind of hand wave those religions because it's just a cultural thing. And the genetic fallacy says that that you can't dismiss a thought or a fact based on its origin. And here's some examples of the genetic fallacy. If your doctor died of cancer, should you automatically exclude everything he ever told you about health? It would be a genetic fallacy to say, well, he died of cancer. Everything he always told me about cancer was a lie. It's the facts about cancer that are at, at stake here, the facts that are on trial, not whether your doctor had cancer or not. German cars are not worth having because the Nazis were German, is genetic fallacy. Pythagoras created his theorem after smoking a joint. And he may have, I don't know, but his theorem is solid. But if you dismissed it because he was high at the time, and he wasn't, but if he was and you dismissed it, you'd be making a, it'd be a fallacy. You'd be making a big mistake. And so, and and I read it on Wikipedia is a big, um, big genetic fallacy. Although I will tell you this, Wikipedia does a pretty decent job of cross, cross referencing and indexing the facts that are in there. And so the facts are what we're looking at, not the source. And at the bottom of the page, on most Wikipedia pages, you can see where they got their information. And if you go to those sources, sometimes they're going to give you sources where they got their source and so forth. And so that's what it takes to do homework. But you can't just dismiss... So we live in a world of fake news. And you can't just say because this network said it, it's true. Or because this network said it, it was false. It it has nothing to do with true or false who is saying it. It It has to do with whether it's factual or not. Whether it corresponds to reality is what is true. And so... This genetic fallacy of, so, so as I stand up here and, and start with Christianity, I, I, I kind of wish I had a story for you that said, you know, I was, I was raised Taoist and I looked at the claims of Jesus and was turned on to Jesus. So those are more dramatic stories. But the reality is the, true, the rise or fall of Christianity or the truth of Christianity has nothing to do with the source of where the information is coming from. It's whether it rises or falls on itself. And, and the people who argue against this would say, if you were born in the, in the deep south in the 1950s, odds are you would be extremely racially prejudiced. Does that make racially prejudice right? Of course not. If you were born in Nazi Germany as a young man, had blonde hair, blue eyes, and joined the SS, you, likely you would have been recruited. That wouldn't make Nazism right. It has nothing to do with the source or where it comes from. It's, it's the facts that, you, that we're looking at here. And so I started with Christianity, and I make, I make no claim otherwise, but I'm turned on to Christianity, and I think the facts line up with kind of the historical, traditional view of Christianity. the the Apostles' Creed type stuff of Jesus being raised from the dead and for, for the forgiveness of our sins and that there was one God rule over all things and so forth. And so what I want to talk about today just in brief is kind of the facts behind that and why I embrace it. And here's, here's where I start is that in B.C. 10, there was no Christianity. So 10 years um, prior to the, the conversion of the dates or before Christ or um, 2,030 years ago, there was no Christianity. There were pagan religions, there were Eastern religions, there was Judaism. And that was kind of all, and, 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 and in Jerusalem, where Christianity blossomed, there was just Judaism and what polytheist, polytheistic pagan religions is what they would describe them. People worshipped Thor and Zeus at that time. And so there was none. And then all of a sudden in history, this thing came up. This new religion, Christianity, started. And it started rapidly. And so what we find is that by 49 to 55 A.D., this basic, basic Christian theology has been established, uh, some of the facts that I'll talk about in a moment. But there was no Christianity, and then 50 years later, it, it was starting to take over the world. I mean, it just, boom, it was just on the scene. And something has to explain that. What, whatever it is, something has to go through and say, say why did this thing happen? Because these are the facts. These are the facts that no skeptic will deny. is 10 B.C., no Christianity, 50 B.C., our 50 A.D., 100 A.D., this thing was exploding onto the scene. Why is the question. We know that by 64 A.D., we know this from the, uh, the works of the great Roman historian Tacitus, who wrote in, this, in the Annals about the persecution of Christians in Rome. And he, he describes a multitudinous in gens the, the, uh, in the Latin. It's, it's, a, it's a great multitude of people who were willing to die, having their flesh torn off, being fed to the animals, defending this new faith. And this is a long way from Jerusalem. Geographically, Rome is quite a bit away from Jerusalem, and so we know that by 64 AD, there was an immense multitude in in just the area of Rome alone willing to die for this thing. This thing exploded onto the scene, and depending on who you listen to, in AD 100, there were about 500,000 to 800,000 Christians on the planet, which was a tremendous portion of the entire human race at that point. Now, There are other people who argue against it, and and so like I mentioned last week, every fact that I'm going to talk about or every piece of evidence has a counter, and there's a counter to that counter that we don't have time to go into, but Philip Schaff, who wrote um, a a seven-volume set called The History of the Christian Church, estimates about 500,000 Christians, and there's an organization called the Center for the Research of Global Christianity at Gordon Comwell University, and they say about 800,000, and so those those are a couple places where those numbers come from, but what we do know is this thing happened, and it happened rapidly, and it took over rapidly, and the question is why? And, and in 2015, there were about 2.4 billion people who waved the banner of Jesus across the planet, so about a third of the population of Earth, and so why? Why did this thing take hold? Why, why has it captured the hearts of so many? The famous rapper Napoleon Dynamite, Nap the Bowster, said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour millions of men would die for him. It's a story that doesn't make sense, as we'll talk about in just a moment, and yet it it enraptured a huge portion of the population of the earth. And why? It wasn't wasn't like in the case of Islam, where there was military conquest, where they came in and it became the state religion. The state religion stuff, where Christianity wasn't concerned, wasn't, wasn't established for hundreds of years, until the 300s A.D. Something happened in the area of love. Something happened in the area of religion and spirituality and faith that revolutionized to the point where immense multitudes were willing to be fed to the dogs over this thing. Why? Gary Habermas and a guy named Mike Lacona, these are, these are a couple names you should read into if you're interested in this stuff, but they wrote a book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus Christ, and in it they established what they called the four plus one minimal facts. And so what they did is they, they studied every possible source they could get their hands on, skeptic and Christian alike, when it comes to the historicity of Jesus and the rise of Christianity. So they, they went into the world and said, "Let find every single source we can possibly find from anyone on this topic, and let's study them and see what they all agree on. Let's find the minimal facts. What are the, what are the facts they all agree on? And they studied them in French, English, and German, so three languages, and they studied skeptics and non-skeptics alike. And when I was studying this stuff years ago, I used to do this professionally where I would go around and teach at conferences and do apologetic seminars and such. And, the apologetics even have shifted in the time that I've been pastoring Daylight Church because they used to have the four plus one minimal facts, four facts that nearly every scholar agrees with and one that about 75% of them. Now they have what they call the six minimal facts. So they've been learning over the last five years, and I'm learning as we go along. And so here's the six minimal facts that they've studied. So these are skeptics, so skeptics and non-skeptics, if they're historians that have any kind of credentials at all, the next slide that I'm going to show you, these six, step, or these six facts are the ones they all across the board agree on. Number one is that Jesus died by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. This automatically right off the top. And this, this is an argument by authority. It's not a great argument, but the argument by authority leads into the study, and I think the study is sound. And so all the scholars basically say Jesus died by crucifixion, which wipes the slate clean, or wipes the table clean of any Christ myth theories, that Christ never existed. You can't be a scholar in good standing and believe that stuff, basically, is what it comes down to. Uh, Number two, that Jesus' tomb was found empty. Number three, that his disciples believed that they saw him as the risen Christ. Now, notice this doesn't say that all the scholars agree that he was the risen Christ. It says they all agree that his disciples believed they saw the risen Christ. Number four, the skeptic and persecutor of Christians, Paul, was converted to Christianity. Five, the skeptic James was converted to Christianity. This, used, this minimal fact used to say the skeptic James, brother of Jesus, converted to Christianity. Now there's some question as to whether, which James they're talking about, and there's a couple different candidates. But somebody who was a, a, a leader of the early church was, a, was a, a skeptic that was converted, and his name was James, and they all agree on this. And then finally, the early Christian belief and proclamation of the resurrection was central to Christianity. And so this wasn't a later... Thing that developed hundreds of years later, the idea of the resurrection. It's scholars across the board recognize this thing. This was what it was founded on from the beginning. When this explosion occurred of people, people willing to die, being fed to the dogs in the arena, it was around the idea of a resurrected dead man from the very beginning. And so, when you take all these facts, so when you, when you start, where, where I'm at is, when you start at the foundation, is there is an intelligent, involved creator. Now, what do you do with that information? Well, when you tie that into, here's some facts about a, risen, a, a, a proclaimed risen dead man that revolutionized the planet, I think, I think the two are, are, are worth putting next to each other and see if the whole thing makes sense. As we talked about a cumulative case for Christianity last week, and now things start to come into focus is there was a God who was personal, and now, to me, it starts to look like he's involved in human history through the person of Jesus. And, and again, we don't have 18 weeks to talk about this stuff, but something in history happened that was revolutionary, and still that tidal wave is still rolling today. It's important to mention that the scriptures here are worth including, and they are included. So what I mean by that is that you, when, when it comes to the Bible, you're going to have this scale of people and how, how a scholar will approach it. And a scholar on one end of the spectrum would say that it was an uninspired work. It's just It's, 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 a, it's of historical interest, but there's nothing supernatural or... There's no, God, there's no God breathed where the Bible is concerned. And then on the other end, you've got what they call plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture, which is kind of a dictation theory on Scripture where God spoke each word to the author and he wrote it down. And so what you have is literally the words of God on the page. And then you've got all kinds of scholars all the way in between. And then you've got the people even further right of that that say, I read the King James Version just like the version Jesus read. And you've got all kinds of people where the spectrum is concerned. But some people want to disclude the Bible completely from this conversation. And to me, that's like going to my house. Let's say, let's say my wife and I are dead, and we're long dead. We're, we're 50 years dead, and you go through to my kid's attic, and you find all our stuff, right? And you find a box full of, full of things. Maybe you find my old computer. There's all kinds of things that you find about us. And one of the things you find is a box of love notes between the two of us, and this box does exist, and so it's good. But, but let's say you find this, this box, and in it, it, it talks about our love for one another and why we love each other, and you know there's some of our pre-marriage stuff where we're really flirting with each other and such, and you could learn a lot about us, but what if there was something strange in there that didn't line up with our character or didn't line up with your perception of reality, right? Let's say at some point in there, we talk about the adopted child that we sent off to Thailand and is now living in Thailand, and this is a fact that none of our friends knew about, right? You read it and you think... Well, that doesn't line up with the history that I knew or, or even worse, there's, there's, something, there's something supernatural in there where I talk about getting in the shower without getting wet or, you know, just something, something bonkers, right? Now, you're going to start to take these pieces and you may reject the fact that I got in the shower without getting wet and rightly so. But what you can't reject is the fact that I wrote a letter to my wife about getting in the shower without getting wet. That's what you can't do. And that's what people want to do with the Bible, is they want, to, they want to say, I don't believe the supernatural elements of the Bible, therefore the Bible is just not worthy of my time or consideration at all. And that doesn't work, because now you're, re, you're rejecting what the people believe, not necessarily what the facts are, but you're, you're seeing what the people believed. And you can study the facts about what they believed, not the beliefs themselves. If any of that makes sense. And by doing this, you learn a tremendous about, about, amount about the rise and fall of Christianity, whether you allow the supernatural elements or not. And here's what you find. When I say, when I say that uh, the scriptures are, are worth including an R, you'll find that in, in these arguments that are anti-Bible, so if you get a Christian and an atheist or a Christian and a Muslim facing off on a stage in front of people and they start talking about the Bible, um, the atheist or the Muslim is going to say, yeah, but your Bible says... Yeah, but your Bible says... And there's this cherry-picking process that occurs. They, 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 they hold on to the parts that they feel like work with their argument, and they let go of the others. And I'm saying, no matter how you treat the Bible, you're going to learn real quickly that there was this explosion of Christianity, and it occurred because they worshipped a risen Savior. Now, whether he was risen or not, that's, that's not established yet. But what is established is lots and lots of people believed this thing early on, and you have to ask yourself, why? Why would they abandon faith that they've held for years, that their families have held for centuries, for this rat- radical, revolutionary new faith that they're willing to die for? I think it's an important question to ask and one that I think about quite a bit. And that's a picture of our love notes. So if you, if you open, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And Luke, Luke was a physician, he was a doctor, and he, he basically set out... There was this guy called Theophilus that he refers to in this passage as the most excellent Theophilus, which is the greatest name of all time, in my opinion. I want that on a (laughs) T-shirt. But he says, and as much as many of you... So this is the first four verses, uh, I think it's first four, of, of the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke's writing a letter to this guy, Theophilus, whose name you see in the bottom right corner. As much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Notice that. He says, I'm writing about the stuff that happened in front of us. He says, it happened with our friends. It happened with our companions. He says, I'm telling you about what, what we have seen. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, important word there, ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also. He doesn't, he doesn't say I'm inspired by the most Holy Spirit. He says, it just seems like a good idea. It seems good to me to do this. He writes this letter. He says, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Many times throughout Scripture, it doesn't read like "I, Paul, writing by the most intimate and holy expression of the Holy Spirit, breathe God into my voice, and here it comes." that's not what you read at all. It's, it seemed good to me to tell you about the things that we saw. and here's what you 're faced with when you face with scripture is these people claim to have seen it. They claimed it happened in front of them, in front of their eyes. It, it, it's, it's one thing it, it's still kooky, the whole shower without getting wet thing, but if, 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 if I tell you I heard about a guy who knew a guy whose cousin's second roommate and his former uncle knows this guy that got in the shower without getting wet. Well, so what? But if Termaine comes to you and says, "Guys, this is this is the wildest thing I can possibly imagine. I don't even know what to do with this. But I got in the shower yesterday, and I got out, and I was dry. Right? Now you still think he's a kook. So I, I'll take it off of you. I did this. Okay, I did this. Now you still think I'm a kook?" But now you're faced with, I'm either lying or something's wrong in my head. And these these are your options where it comes to the whole Jesus story, is that these people were lying or they were crazy. And I don't think either option makes a whole lot of sense. We don't have time to go into either option, but these people were people who would die for integrity, that taught, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and anything else comes from the devil. These were people who had a sound mind and gave us some of the teaching. that. He, yesterday, the Titans beat the Ravens. I know some of you guys are excited about that. There are David and Goliath stories out there, right? There, there's, there's Judge Not Lest You Be Judged Yourself. There's the Good Samaritan you'll hear about all the time. These, these stories, these teachings came out of this whole thing. These were wise people propagating a wise gospel. So you can call them liars if you want. You can call them kooks if you want. But I don't think they're intellectually justified. But those are your options when people say, I saw it. I was there. Those are your only options. They were willing to die for this thing. Uh, During the Watergate scandal, it was told that there were four people who knew about the scandal itself. And if those four people could keep their mouths shut, nobody would go to jail. And yet the whole thing leaked because they were afraid of jail time. When it comes to Christianity, these were people being skinned alive being drawn and quartered by horses, dragged behind horses till they were dead, hung upside down on crosses. And they wouldn't remit. They wouldn't relent. I think it says something that the the early church was willing to die, and you have to ask why. And then it's not a very smart story. If you're going into... A pagan, if, you're, if you're going into Judaic culture and trying to prove the Messiah, the Messiah is a political leader who comes in and conquers the Romans. That's the, that's the religious leader the, the Jews were looking for. And the pagans are looking for firebolts from heaven. And the Christian story has none of the components of either of those. It's a totally new story. Who made this thing up? What, what liar or lunatic did this thing? It's a hard sell in my opinion. So... I'm sold on Christianity. Man, i got to fly. i got four minutes, and I've got 30 minutes worth of material here. Here we go. What about other faiths? What about Islam and Buddhism and Judaism and Jainism and Hindus and, Bih- and so forth? Uh, I wrote this out because I, I wanted to say—you may have noticed that I kind of ramble when I get up here sometimes. I just say what I say. Whatever's on the screen, I talk about that thing, and there it is. And there's sometimes that that's not very wise— And so I wanted to write this out, and it's long, but I'm going to read it to you. It says, I'm convinced, this is me speaking, HL speaking about my beliefs. I'm convinced that Jesus Christ was and is God's clearest revelation to humankind about himself. He's the word, the logos, the Greek logos of God. I believe him to be the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one person comes to the Father except by him. He's a life transformer, death defeater, and kingdom builder, giving us grace and power to live for and with God that we can't manufacture ourselves. I believe he was God incarnate, the one and only God, creator of all things in the flesh. I believe he was resurrected from the dead and gives us new life, rescuing us from sin and death. I believe him to be the only one worthy of worship. Because I believe these things, I have to say that I believe other religions that say something different about him or his teaching are incorrect in these areas. For example, Islam says he was never resurrected because he never died. Hinduism and even Mormonism to an extent seem to embrace him as one God among many, even millions of gods. Baha'ism wants to cherry-pick all the religions, and scientism often denies God entirely. And Buddhism makes you want to pull yourself up by your bootstraps for nirvana, and though it seems to argue that letting go is the way to pull up, and Judaism is still waiting for a Messiah, though Jesus qualifies and is the only one, in my opinion, that ever has or ever will. And so I can, I can go through each of these faiths, and I've studied them to, long enough to, to say that I don't buy them. But I also said this, I said, however, I'm also what some might call a cautious evangelical inclusivist. I believe God is working everywhere at all times to reconcile the world to himself and works in spite of us as often as he does because of us. He may be working in ways that we can't see or grasp, and I can happily celebrate when a Buddhist feeds the hungry or a Hindu takes a good hard look at the caste system or a Mormon spends time with family or a secularist stands against human trafficking. I can recognize these moments as kingdom come and celebrate them like I believe Jesus does. So I can see these things and I can say, I can say that looks like Jesus. And I can say it in, in a lot of different re- religions. And so I propagate a gospel of Jesus and think everyone should follow Jesus. But I can get excited when other people do kingdom-centered stuff and celebrate those things. If you have questions about that, we have an email for you. It's called questions at daylightchurch.com. So what if God became flesh? So, so let's pretend that there's this prophecy that that one day the messiah would come and it's not pretending because it actually was prophecy and he was supposed to come and reveal god to mankind what would we expect out of this supposed messiah well we would expect him to be predictable and surprising you would expect whoever this man was or woman was you would expect them there'd be something different about them so you could predict that that they would stand out some way or that their teachings would be exceptional or that their miracle working power would show up but then you'd also expect that if God is God and God becomes a man or a woman, that there would be, there'd be stuff you don't understand. If you can wrap your head around it, it ain't God. And Jesus was, those, was both of those. He was revealing and mysterious. He was challenging and understanding. So he pushed people to their core to see change in their lives, all carrying the mantle of mercy and forgiveness and complete understanding. He gets it. He's like you. He knows you. These these anthropic, powerful, wise, confusing, and fulfilling. And I don't have time to go through all of those, so we can talk about that later. But here's the good news, is that God did become flesh. And now death is defeated, and fear is destroyed, and hope is grounded, and love has come. And here, I say all that to say, on the last slide, I said you expect them to be challenging, mysterious, powerful, wise, confusing, and fulfilling. And I can say, personally, I find the teachings of Jesus to be greatly satisfying. All my biggest questions in life, Jesus seems to come in and make sense of them. Death is defeated. Fear is destroyed. Hope is grounded. Love has arrived. I'm going to close with this idea from the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon of all time. Where, And I I kind of paraphrased it. I've been reading through the Sermon on the Mount and connecting one thought with the next and one thought with the next, trying to say, what in its entirety was Jesus trying to say? And I think as you do that as an exercise, you start to see something take, take place and in chapter 6 of, of the book of Matthew, he says, don't store up earthly treasure. That's not where it's at. He says, in, he, he says if your, your eye is the window to your soul, and if your eye is unhealthy, everything is collapsed. He says, so don't, don't look for earthly treasure of satisfaction. See what is important. He says, let, let yourself see what is important, and you can't serve both what is important and what is unimportant at the same time. They're exclusive. He says, some people will, but don't judge those people. You work on yourself. You do you. And then he says, God will give you what is sacred. Ask for it, seek it, knock on his door. We read these as bumper stickers, ask, seek, knock, and say, well, if I pray for winning the lottery, or if I pray for the right job, or if I pray for this, or pray for that, God has to give it to me because his word says. And we're not tying in together the whole thing that he's saying. And right before that, he says this very strange thing. He says, don't give what is sacred unto dogs. Don't give pearls unto swine. If you throw the pearls out among the dog, they're going to rip you apart. And then he follows that. About the sacred with ask, seek, knock. What is sacred is now available through Jesus. And then Jesus closes up his sermon with this He says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, then that are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So he says, Don't focus on the material. See what's important. Get rid of what's unimportant. Don't judge people. Ask for what is sacred. And then he says this. He says, ask God and he will give it to you because he's good. And then he summarizes everything in this one little passage right below that. He says, so, 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 I've said all this. So, now I'm transitioning into the, the gist of it. He says, so, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And we know if you, if you, if you read Jesus at all, you'll see this is the law of love. Jesus says, don't worry about what's not important. Don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. And I'm, I'm convinced that when we look at death and fear, and, and the reason we don't have hope is because of fear. We, 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 we fear death. But the reason we fear death isn't because we fear death. We fear the loss of love. If there was no love, you wouldn't care if you died. And now Jesus, is, what, he's, he's tying it all together, and I didn't have time to do it, but he's tying it all together to say, don't worry about anything. Love is here. Love is the law. Love is who I am. And to me, that gels with everything inside me. It gels with everything I see in the universe, the beauty of a rainbow, the, the voice of a friend. The idea of love to me is all-encompassing and all-important. And that's what you see in the life of Jesus. It doesn't do justice to the whole thing, but there you have it.